1 Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Menega. In this episode, I talk with Yolanda Pierce. Yolanda is professor and dean of Howard University School of Divinity. She's also the author of In My Grandmother's House, Black Women, Faith, and the Stories We Inherit. Also musically featured throughout this episode is Slow Rider. Slow Rider is a psychedelic pop artist from Colorado. You can get connected with Yolanda and Slow Rider and their work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today we have Yolanda Pierce with us, and Yolanda, you are a professor and dean of Howard University School of Divinity in Washington, D.C., and uh, you also recently wrote a book that is absolutely incredible. Everybody should read it. It's called In My Grandmother's House, Black Women, Faith, and the Stories We Inherit. It's incredible, uh, and so I'm really excited to chat a little bit more about the book, but before we do that, I want to know who is Yolanda Pierce to Yolanda Pierce? Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you. Who is Yolanda Pierce to Yolanda Pierce? It's pretty boring, but uh, (laughs) Yolanda Pierce, um, besides being a professor and a dean, is someone who grew up in a family that was a deeply committed, devout Christian family. And so my faith has always been a part of my life. But as a grown-up adult woman, what I think I am is an activist for justice, um, someone who loves God, someone who deeply loves students and being around students and a writer. Lovely. So many things going on. So you, like I mentioned before, wrote a book called In My Grandmother's House. And interestingly, this wasn't the first book you wrote, or it wasn't the only book that you wrote in 2021. You had a couple come out, but those were like your first two books, right? Yes. Yes. We're on book number three right now. Ooh, great. Wonderful. I'm excited to get my hands on that one too. So you wrote In My Grandmother's House last year, 
I'm sure like in the process of writing one of your first books, there's lots that you learn about yourself. So yeah, what did you learn about yourself uh, while you were writing the book? This is a very different project. And so as a scholar, I've written academic work and academic books, but this was something that was deeply personal. Mm -hmm. It was about wanting very much so to take my background as a theologian, my academic training, but to write something for a much broader audience. And so I think over the course of my career, I have been in both of those spaces. I write for more popular audiences in terms of magazines and journals, and um, I do a lot of blogs and and television and what have you. And then I have my academic work, sort of my more Mm -hmm. formal academic work. So for me, writing in my grandmother's house was an opportunity to have an extended piece of work for a more popular audience, but that was centered in theology. It's actually Mm -hmm. a book about theology. Totally. Well, speaking of which, even though this is a book of constructing a theology out of the faith of many of your ancestors, obviously, including your grandmother, what did you learn either theologically or maybe learn about the faith of your ancestors that maybe you didn't know prior to writing this book? Maybe there was something that kind of came about while you were in the process of writing that you're like, wow, I had no idea about that. Absolutely. So I started off with an animated question, which was, what if the greatest theologian I have ever known was my grandmother? So Mm. I had a question. I didn't have an answer to the question. I just had that as a question. And so as I was writing, and then by the time I got to the end, I thought, well, yes, that's the answer to the question. But also how much theology I was learning from around me in my childhood, through the elders in my community, without it being explicitly expressed as such. And so there's a way in which we, in Christian environments, we have scripture, we have catechism, we have doctrine, we have theology, we have all kinds of formal ways of thinking about God that are being expressed within the context of religious settings. Much of what I was learning about theology I was learning not from the theologians properly Mm -hmm. uh, construed Mm -hmm. of as theologians, but from the world around me, from observation, from um, the little church mothers. And that was just amazing to me to think about how much that theology has stayed with me and influenced me and really creates the foundation from which I also write theology. Absolutely. Well, speaking of this person, your grandmother, I feel like Listeners need to know who who she was. So, so much of this book is about your grandmother, obviously, hence the title, and her experiences in her life. So for, yeah, listeners to kind of gain a perspective and gain a context about the book, can you talk a little bit about who your grandmother was? What was she like? What were some of the key experiences in her life? So I was raised by my grandparents, uh, my grandmother and my grandfather. My grandparents, including my grandmother, were part of that second wave of African-American migration folks who left the rural South, largely because of violence, because of racism, because of Jim Crow, and found their way to major cities across the U.S., largely in the North. So my grandparents eventually found their way um, to New York City. My grandmother was born and raised in Georgia. And so my grandmother, um, like a lot of Southern women before her um, and her cohort of women who experienced this great migration were church women. 
So I was raised by formidable uh, church women. They took church very seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, church was business and um, they were wonderful cooks. They were very loving, very kind. They were also extremely strict. And <laughs> I talk a little bit about uh, what it means to grow up in a holiness Pentecostal um, upbringing, um, a very strict upbringing. Um, But what I think I learned the most about both my grandmother and other women like her uh, during this particular time is that it took a lot of courage, courage for them to leave the South, courage for them to find their way to New York or Chicago or Philadelphia or wherever um, they went, courage to raise families in um, under the shadow of racism and, and racial discrimination. And I think a lot of that courage came because of how seriously they took their faith. Mm hmm. The other really interesting thing that was very clear to me throughout the book was obviously you're talking about like your grandmother's faith and her experiences and your experiences with her in the church. But not all of the book has talked about these specific experiences in the church. A lot of the theology, a lot of the faith that you learn was outside of the church with your grandmother. Can you talk about some of those experiences that you had? Absolutely. So it it was all around me and you don't realize how much it influences you until you're sort of out in the world, you know, doing your thing. So when I got to college and I was 16 years old when I went to college and I was thrown into an environment that was just as completely alien. I, it, it couldn't have been any more alien if you had taken me to the moon. And what I recognized was that um, so much of what I taught, I was still I still had within me, but also was being challenged. It was being challenged by people of other faiths, people of other uh, traditions. It was being challenged as I was encountering um, what it meant to be a Black girl in the world. Um, And so I think about my college experiences, but I also think about my current experiences as a grown-up woman trying to navigate, trying to be the best um, person that I can possibly be, how difficult it is, how how hard it is, and why it makes sense for me that there is a liberatory theology that is justice-centered, which really helps me to say I can move forward in a world which sometimes seems so fraught with a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. And um, so I'm carrying all of that with me, some of those stories. And so part of a good significant portion of the book is about that, just what Mm -hmm. it means to live in a world as a Black woman who is writing theology, what it means to have a justice-centered faith, and the questions I still have, the questions Mm -hmm. I still cannot answer about that. So clearly, like, there's been just so much growth and so much change that has happened throughout your life, especially theologically. Uh, You mentioned that you went to college when you were really young, and a lot of changes happened then. I I am interested in, and this was, like, something that kind of was something I was curious about as I was reading the book, was certainly there was a kind of faith in the Black church that you had grown up in with, obviously, your grandmother. When you did start to encounter like the whole diversity of thought of like womanist theology, for example, were there times where you're studying uh, like a womanist theologian and realizing actually there might be ways that they think about theology and faith that are different than even the way that my black church growing up thought about faith and theology, or even maybe that was different than your grandmother's faith in theology? Did you like start to encounter kind of like the plurality and diversity of different ways of thinking about not only um, black theology, but also womanist thought? 
Absolutely. So when I encountered Womanist Thought, I fell in love. I was like, this is amazing, right? Here are these theologians and writers and, and, and thinkers and scholars who are writing from the vantage point of Black women. But it was a real challenge to me. I, Because I was raised in the Black church, and because, like I said, I have a holiness Pentecostal background, I have a very high Christology, which is to say I have a very, very high view of the personhood of Jesus Christ um, and the divinity um, of Jesus. Um, womanist theology as a formal academic discipline is not a high Christological scholarship. Mm -hmm. And so that was such a conflict for me. I, I was raised to think that even the name Jesus was sacred, mm -hmm. that to call upon Jesus, that who we understand Jesus to be is really at the center of my faith. I encountered womanist theology and womanist theology became a challenge for me in part because it helped me to think about some of the stuff I did not think about, which is the brutality, the passion of Christ, the suffering, and the ways in which unfortunately the Christian church tends to glorify suffering. So womanist theology posed this question for me, how do I have a savior and that savior often seems to be constructed as someone who glorifies violence, glorifies suffering. And then how do I have this high Christology in which I was raised in which mm -hmm. Jesus is everything. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I don't have to solve that dilemma. I don't, I don't have to come to a conclusion. I have to simply sit with the tension of that. Mm -hmm. I love Jesus. I, I love the faith in which I was raised in which even the name of Jesus would evoke such passion and such joy, right? But I also have to sit with the reality of um, those who have used the experience of the cross as the only way to know Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so therefore, the image of the suffering servant and questions of suffering become the way in which you get to know God better and you know God more. I sit with the tension of that. And so mm -hmm. for me, that's the best of both worlds, not having to solve the dilemma, but recognizing where the tensions are. When you started to encounter some of this womanist thought that was challenging to your faith, did you ever bring it up to your grandmother? I would imagine it was probably a similar response if you did as when you mentioned uh, to her about maybe getting a food processor. <laughs> so, um, the, no, the, the answer really is no. Okay. Um, I don't think that this generation of women would have considered themselves womanist or feminist. It's not language that they, they would have had. But where the challenges really did come in was just when I started to reject certain things. I started to reject whether or not I could only wear skirts and dresses. And mm. I started to reject the kind of legalism of, oh, your hymn has to be this amount of it. None of that made any sense. Wearing the head covering, I would imagine, too. <laughs> Wearing the, yes, the, the doily in church. So none of that made any sense to me once I had been exposed to like this larger body um, of work. I am careful though, because I wanted to be understood. This isn't a rejection of how I grew up. This isn't a rejection of even what I was taught. It is for me, just a different way of being in mm -hmm. the world. And so everyone has to find their own path. So I think that's where really my grandmother's faith and then the faith that I was growing into met their conflicts because the lot of the legalism, I just had to leave it behind mm -hmm. in order for me to be whole and healthy in mm -hmm. Christ. You mentioned that your grandmother wouldn't have like considered herself a feminist or a womanist. I, w I was interested, like, wouldn't she have been like in the same generation as like some of those early womanists like Audre Lorde and Alice Walker and Toni Morrison and some of that early generation? Would she have been in that same generation or was she still Absolutely. a generation before? 
no, she would have been in their generation, but um, she had no formal education and no kind of training and would not have read them. Would mm. So so it's like we, in some ways, I think about how formative some of the names that you just mentioned are to me, but I also know that they were not names in which, uh, with which my grandmother would have been familiar. Mm. She was part of a group of church women for whom the scripture did not need to be interpreted through these other lenses. So you had the Bible, you had Jesus, you had a relationship with God, you had a church home, and, and that was enough. And so even though in terms of age, she absolutely would have been peers with some mm-hmm. of these women, she would not have been familiar with them at all and probably would have rejected the idea of feminism Interesting. or womanism. Interesting. You have this great section in kind of the middle of the book about leaving. And my guess is many of my listeners uh, of this podcast are people who have left their faith, uh, at least from the one that they were brought up in. What have you learned theologically in the sacred act of leaving? So thank you. That's an important question to me because I think leaving can be sacred. Not everyone is called to leave. Some people should stay. Um, They feel very much so called to stay in their religions, denominations, uh, churches, fellowships, right, where they can be a voice of critique, they can help to move and and change it and shift. But sometimes you're called to leave. Sometimes you might be called to leave a particular church setting. Sometimes you might be called to leave a particular religion or a denomination. And it is hard. And what I wanted to say, and what I am saying to your listeners is that there is something sacred and saying, I am not being fed here. I am not being able to experience the full expression of my personhood here. And so I have to leave because I believe that if I am made in God's image and likeness, I get to experience the fullness of my humanity and I get to find somewhere else. That is not an easy thing to do. Logistically, it's not easy. And that journey itself for me is really the important part. It's not where you land, but it is actually taking that risk and that leap to say that there is another place, another space, another community in which I can be loved as my true full self. But that journey is scary and you might have to do it by yourself. And it might, in fact, be very, very lonely. And to say, that's okay. And to say, I think that's where God shows up. Mm -hmm. I think God shows up in the journey, the loneliness, the scariness of it all. I think that's where we sometimes best hear from God. That's why I love like when Dolores Williams titled her probably magnum opus of Sisters in the Wilderness. I mean, it really, especially for you as like a black woman, might feel like a lot of your life is spent in that wilderness of kind of being in this perpetual space of like feeling like you're always having to leave the space in which you might be comfortable for a moment and then realize maybe it's not so safe for me anymore and I have to leave. Absolutely. It is wilderness. And I think that's where a faith journey probably grows and develops. That's not to say you don't have places that you call home. There are mm-hmm. places um, for us that are very much so home, but I don't know if they look the way that maybe we're true traditionally taught that home looks. Mm -hmm. You find your people and your people might not be kinfolk, right? Um, You find that space, you find those intellectual spaces, you find those spaces that um, really feed your spirit. 
But often those spaces require a lot of hard work to develop and, and to grow. And so I simply say to people that there is a space for you, but sometimes you have to take that risk and it's the void, right? You, you take the risk and you don't know what's going to happen. And if you don't know if you're going to find your people, you don't know if you're going to find a safe place to land. But I do think that for some people, they're very much so called to do that. The courage to do that is absolutely essential, I think, to this journey. You briefly alluded to this in your conversation just a bit ago about uh, suffering, but you asked this poignant question in the middle of the book about even though that many like black women unquestionably love God uh, and like you you kind of pulled out a bunch of statistics. It's like something like 85 percent of black church membership are black women. And so despite the fact that like black women have shown and demonstrated that they unquestionably love God, despite many of the injustices they face every single day, you ask this question, does God love Black women back? And I think this is a great critical engagement about God's goodness, uh, especially in the midst of suffering. Yeah, so I want to ask the question, does God love Black women? Um, That was a real, it is, it continues to be a real live question for me. Um, I know writers are fond of rhetorical devices, and so sometimes we'll ask a provocative question. It's not a rhetorical question, and it is meant to be the real question of my heart. Some of the statistics that I quote are about um, maternal outcomes for Black women. And I mean, here in the United States, mm-hmm. um, they are about rates of marriage and rates of divorce. They are about health outcomes and health disparities. And when I look around and say, here is a group of people who are being so faithful, who are keeping the doors of the church open, whose tithes and offerings literally keep some churches afloat, um, who when I open the doors of the church, clean the bathrooms, uh, paint the buildings. Right. When, when I look at that faithfulness and then I look at such great injustice, the question of does God love Black women is a real question. It is the question of does God love me as a Black woman? Does God, God love God's faithful? And here's the, here's the conclusion. The conclusion is I've been in seasons where the answer is absolutely yes. Yes, mm-hmm. God loves Black women. Yes, God loves God's faithful. Yes, God loves... And I've been in seasons where the answer feels like no, mm. that I haven't felt God's love, where God has felt very absent for me. I simply wanted to write that to say to the reader that you can acknowledge when God feels absent. You can acknowledge when you don't feel that love. You can acknowledge when you um, don't feel the embrace of, of the holy and, and the sacred. That's very scary for some people to do, to say, I don't feel that God loves me, that, that this body, whether that body is gay or queer or straight, whether that body is black or white or Asian, that there's something that, that God doesn't love. And for me to say, yes, God loves you. God made you fearfully, wonderfully in God's image, but that sometimes you feel the silence and mm-hmm. the absence. And um, so I go back to that chapter again and again, because the answer is both yes and no. The answer, the answer people want is, of course, God loves everybody. That doesn't comfort you in the midnight hour, right? Mm. But I hope that there is some comfort in knowing that we can take the risk to say to God, I don't feel you. I don't sense your presence. I don't feel your love. And where are you? I think we can do what the Psalms do, which is they cry out in, in, in their pain and, and their hurt. 
like, why, why God and why me? And, and what am I going to do about this? And we don't have to be afraid to do that. We don't have to be afraid to, to cry out to God. We can model what I think does happen on the cross, a sense of forsakenness and to say, I'm feeling forsaken and I need God to intervene immediately. Mm-hmm. And so that's what that particular chapter is for me. Your response, especially as you're talking about Jesus's cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross, really reminds me a lot of the title Hope in the Holler by, I think it was Elaine Crawford, right? Like Crawford, where she yeah. talks all about the hope of black women in the midst of the holler. They're crying out. And yeah, in those moments, I, I think you called them midnight hour. It seems like your faith in, in those moments is kind of this like hope in the holler type of faith. And I want to tell people they can holler that they can yeah. cry, they can shout, they 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 can um, be like the wailing women. And I, I use that imagery because I think it's such a powerful um, imagery that you can acknowledge that there's hope. You can acknowledge that um, there is some joy in the morning, but the weeping during the night, that's very, very mm-hmm. real. And that we don't have to diminish our pain simply to make other people feel more comfortable because that's unfortunately part of the experience of Black women, which is how do I diminish what I'm feeling and what I experience because I don't want other people to feel uncomfortable with my pain. I think that you get to sit in the wilderness and be there and feel the hurt and feel it and know that, yes, joy will still come in the morning. Towards the end of the book, you talk about salvation as this communal act. So how is salvation not just about our individual souls, but about healed communities even? Absolutely. Thank you. I I love that. I love soteriology. So when I say that this book is very much so about theology, each chapter is actually meant to be a theological chapter. There's a chapter Mm -hmm. about ecclesiology. There's a chapter about soteriology. There's a chapter about eschatology. I don't name it as such because, well, A, I want the reader to do some work and B, because as I mentioned, my grandmother wouldn't have used those words, but we talked about salvation all the time. So here's what I wanted to say about salvation and soteriology. It's not enough to talk about the individual. I was raised with such a sense of individual salvation. You have the personal savior, no God for yourself. I actually call it the pocket Jesus. And so we have Jesus and Jesus is so small. Jesus fits into our little pocket and that's it. Soteriology is much bigger than that. What, What does it mean if in fact I'm quote unquote saved, but everyone around me is hurting or suffering? And so Salvation is not simply individualistic. It is about whole communities. It is about healing people. It is about healing families. And until we really can get a hold of a salvation that is for the least of these, for the masses, um, then I don't think we have a proper understanding of salvation. If salvation for a person is, I know Jesus, I believe I'm saved, I believe I'm going to go to heaven, and that's it, then I don't think we actually understand what soteriology is is at all. Where's your community? Where are your people? Um, Where are the least of these? Because that's where God is. And so salvation has to be much, much more communal than anything that we currently think about when we talk about salvation. Also, towards the end of the book, you talk about how like many harmful and impressive metaphors uh, are the type of metaphors we sing, we pray, and even maybe read in the Bible at our churches. What are some of these metaphors that you're talking about that are oppressive and harmful? And 
what are some alternatives that you think are much more liberating that, again, we can sing, we can pray, and even maybe read in our Bibles? So I grew up in a tradition in which um, the pronouns for God were all masculine. Uh, mm. So he and, and father and, and his. I grew up singing songs and hymns in which um, I would petition God to wash me white as snow. Um, I grew up with a lot of um, battle metaphor, uh, metaphors for God, uh, Christian soldiers. And I'm, I reject those metaphors and, and imagery now. I get that they're analogies. I, I get that they're metaphors. And I get that that people use them to, to paint a picture, but sometimes that can be harmful. So I'm not ever going to sing a hymn in which I am asked to be washed white as snow. God doesn't require me to give up the very flesh in which God um, birthed me um, in order to know who God is. Um, I had to give up the language that was only masculine for understanding God, uh, not because I don't believe that God can be understood as father. God can be understood as father, but God can also be understood as mother. God is also um, the mother hen who gathers her 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 little chicks under her um, her wing. God is a nursing mother and. So what I'm trying to get people to do is to think bigger about um, God, about God language, about the divine, so that there is space for all of us. People don't understand necessarily the harm it does, but it it does harm when you equate whiteness with divinity and therefore darkness um, with that which is evil. It matters for people who have a darker hued skin. Mm -hmm. Our metaphors, our analogies, our language really matters. God is mother, God is parent. And so for the people who may have very fractured issues with father, for God to still be a parent um, to them. And so I really want us to think about the words that we use Mm -hmm. and, and how we use them and to embrace something that allows space for people to feel more loved. And so um, I love the idea of God as friend. And so I quote Mm -hmm. from what a friend we have in Jesus. And, and I um, love the the notion that God is in the darkness, right? And God Mm -hmm. um, births us from the darkness and that darkness is also a healing space. And Mm -hmm. it's simply to challenge us to simply say that our words matter. They are life or death for people. And that part of this justice-seeking work, part of this liberatory work is for our language to shift so that all feel that they are part of the body. Mm -hmm. A lot of my thesis has incorporated a lot of cognitive science. And one of the things that I've encountered in studying cognitive science of religion is that the metaphors that we use about God and about divinity actually have material effects on our bodies and the way that we experience the world. And of course, like we're like, oh, of course, like if you always talk about God as father, like that's going to affect you in some way. But the cool thing now with cognitive science is we have measurable data about that. And so that's what I I love so much about studying some of this science is it really illuminates the reasons why we need to be mindful of the kind of language that we use about God and divinity. Absolutely. The language we use, if it's about soldiers and warfare, um, when God causes calls us to seek peace. And so it does have an impact on us. So um, I know I can't do it all in my lifetime, right? But it is to get people to think about what language are they using to describe the supernatural, the divine, um, to describe God. And it's also what language are we using to talk about who we are in community with one another. Uh, so I love that. I love that that's what your thesis is about. That's very exciting. 
Yeah. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change. It's a podcast about seeking moral high ground. And it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know. So you've already kind of touched on a lot of this, uh, but let's say you were in an elevator and somebody finds out uh, that you're that doesn't know you. A stranger walks into the elevator with you and they find out that you wrote a, wrote this book and they ask you, well, like, what's what's this about? Uh, like, what 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 is this womanist theology that you're trying to construct uh, about? Uh, so if you had to sort of succinct, succinctly talk about it in an elevator. Yeah. What, what is the womanist theology that you're trying to construct in this book based on the experiences and life of your grandmother? I would say to that person that I am trying to change a theological conversation. And what I'm hoping to do is to shift what we think of are the raw materials for doing um, theology. Much of what we do when we talk about doing theology is we mine scripture, we mine um, some of the sacred writings. And unfortunately, so much of that writing has excluded um, people of color and certainly has excluded African-Americans. And so I'm trying to say, what is the other material, the source material for which we can do theological reflection? And to say to people, you have some of that source material conversations with your elders and your grandparents, um, the, the, the world around you, uh, nature, the environment. So what I'm trying to do as a scholar is what I'm trying to do in this book to say we have source material for doing theological work. It's not only Luther, it's not only Calvin, right, it's right. not only Bart, as wonderful as they are. And these are theologians I've read and, and will continue to read, but we have other source material and that source material can come from unexpected places, um, including your grandmother. That's amazing. It, again, that sort of ties in with a lot of my thesis. Uh, I'm basically making the argument that it is our bodies that is central and primary to the way that we think about theology. Uh, while tradition and scripture and all of those things are important and do play a part of it, basically the argument that I'm making is that it really is our bodies, which is part of the reason why I'm incorporating a lot of science of our bodies uh, in, in the thesis. But I love that. I love the science of the body. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This might be a related question, but how do you hope In My Grandmother's House inspires and liberates its readers? I hope that they take seriously that they also have stories that they have inherited, which they can share. People make scripture um, in in the Christian tradition to be very, very complicated. Um, It's a series of stories and histories and poems and songs. And so we have stories that we have to share to be in community with one another. Um, I also hope that people um, really look around. You, you said the body. And, and for me, that really is very striking because this embodied theology is really critical. I describe being in a small church where I happen to be the preacher for that Sunday. That's not the interesting part, but I'm in this small church and I'm watching people as they worship. 
and some are standing and some are weeping and, and some are lifting their hands, but the body is doing things as mm-hmm. people are, are worshiping. And so I'm again, back to what's the source material for how we do theology. They're doing theology with their body. And I think it's really important for us to be able to make space for those who are not necessarily trained, um, uh, don't necessarily have the kinds of academic background in which uh, many of our theologians, including myself, have, um, but to make space for how they understand the faith, Mm -hmm. because that's what we've inherited. We've inherited a faith that for thousands of years was primarily oral, was taught, was passed by story and story from family to family. And, And there's something really powerful there that we still need to hold on to. So very much so connected to how we both inherit the stories and also how we pass them to another generation. Lovely. Last question, Yolanda, how can listeners get connected to you and your work? They can follow me on Twitter. Um, Twitter is my second home. I live on Twitter. It's, I'm it's great. You're a great follow. They can, <laughs> they can follow me on Twitter at YN Pierce. Um, my website is YolandaPierce.com. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for chatting a little bit about the book. Uh, Again, I I absolutely loved it. It was one of the first books that I've read this year, and I just think the world of it. Everybody should get a copy. So even though it's almost been out for a year at this point, I'm really glad that I still was able to dive into it and and get reading it. So thank you so much for chatting more about it. Thanks so much. It's been a joy. If you'd like to connect with Yolanda and Slow Rider and their work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mesa And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates. First Corinthians warned you about the women with a loud mouth, and this podcast is just that. Here at the Speaking in Church podcast, we talk all about the regular people and the things that regularly happen to them in the evangelical church. It's a podcast about change, it's a podcast about seeking moral high ground, and it's a podcast for people who are just trying to deconstruct on the safe side. You can listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to be a guest, yes, you, regular person, you can be a guest on the Speaking in Church podcast. If you want to come on, just let us know.